perfectly and fully. And this was in a matter of great concern to a man named Paul, an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ, through whom many of these churches had come into being. And so in some of the letters that he wrote to them, he tackles this particular subject head on. And in the little letter we've been studying over these Sunday mornings, written to the church in Philippi, under the title, Shining Like Stars, he alludes to this in the verses that we're focusing on this morning. And he says in the strongest terms possible that as far as he is concerned, he has not yet arrived. So let's read first of all what he said. You really do need to have a Bible in front of you, as we always have on these Sunday mornings and evenings. We believe that this is God's Word, and you want to make sure that what I say is in accordance with what is written there. So, Philippians 3, we're focusing on verses 12 to 16, it's page 1180 in the Pew Bibles. And let's pick up where we left off last week, if you were here, and by the way, most of you know that all the messages are on tape and you can download them on the internet uh, if at any time you wish to, or you can't sleep. Uh, verse, verse 10 then. This is where we finished last week. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Now, the background to these verses is that he uses a picture with which his Greek readers would have been very familiar as we are in the modern era. The picture behind all this is the picture of the Greek games and of an athlete in these games, probably someone running in a long distance event. And Paul says for him, his race, as it were, started out, look at the phrase he uses, it's a very interesting phrase, when Christ Jesus took hold of me. The word took hold describes the idea of decisively, powerfully seizing someone or something. Here's a child, we can all remember this when we were children, who does something wrong maybe knocks something over and breaks it. And they run away from the scene, and as they're running away, suddenly a hand reaches out and takes hold of them. And they find themselves face to face with mum or dad. Now, this is what Paul says happened to him 25 years ago it was. He was heading in a particular direction. His life was going in a particular direction. 
In fact, on this particular day, he was heading towards the Syrian capital, Damascus, intent on continuing to arrest, imprison, and even kill the followers of one Jesus of Nazareth. When suddenly a blinding light from the sky and a voice from heaven stopped him dead in his tracks and he found himself face to face confronted with none other than this Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now before we move on, let me ask you a personal question. Can you say with assurance, looking back into the past, Christ Jesus took hold of me? Although the personal details of your experience would probably be very different from those of Paul. It may not have been a blinding light from heaven or a voice from the sky. Nonetheless, there must be in our lives a decisive life changing encounter with Jesus Christ. It's the start of a new life. It's the start of a new direction in life. And I simply ask you, have you started out? And for Paul, that day on the road to Damascus was the beginning. It was the beginning of a personal relationship with Jesus. What he calls in verse 8, we looked at last week, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But the point Paul now goes on to make is, that was only the beginning, not the end. I started the race, but I've not yet reached the finishing line. Instead, he says, using a play on words, I'm pressing on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. The word pressing there is an interesting word. It's the same word he uses earlier in this chapter when he says, he used to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. The word persecute and press are the same word in the original. It means, that was my consuming passion before. And Christ Jesus took hold of him and turned his life around fully. And now he's got a different goal in life. He's pressing on to a different aim. Instead of persecuting the church, he now serves the church. And now he says, that relationship with Jesus that began when I started the race, my whole passion in life is to get to know Jesus better. To take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. So that's what he says, this new pursuit in life is a good word for it. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead he says that's my goal in life now but I've not yet reached it I've not yet arrived look at verse 12 not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect verse 12 and then in verse 13 should they have not got the point he says brothers I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it very gentle way of addressing people he calls them brothers we're in the same family here of course, you can read into it. He's the elder brother, in fact, the spiritual father of this church. And he's saying, very gently, if I've not reached it, can you really claim that you've reached it? That you're perfect? Now, if this is true of Paul, it is certainly true of me. And is it not true of you? And yet, how easy it is 
to fall into the trap of thinking and acting otherwise, especially when you've been on the road a long time. So we settle for where we're at. We begin to take it easy. We relax our vigilance. We become inflexible to new ideas or fresh light from God's Word. Or faced with disappointment, we become disillusioned and like the marathon runner halfway through the race, we hit the wall and we sit by the side of the road and we've dropped out. And I have no doubt this morning that there are people in this church who started off so well running the race for Christ. You can look back to that day and yet you're barely jogging and some of you have fallen by the wayside. You've not yet arrived. Now, here's the challenge from God's Word. The challenge is, how do we get going again? How do we refocus? Well, Paul goes on to tell us how he did it and how he's determined to ensure that he does arrive. He needs, and we need, a single-minded determination. That is, we need a clear focus in life. He actually says, the original says, but one thing. The, the translators have added the word, I do, to make sense of it. But Paul literally says, but, I've not yet arrived, but one thing. I do. I press on. Now, there are two aspects to this that we're going to look at now. First of all, he says, as far as the past is concerned, I want to keep forgetting it. Instead, I want to focus on the future. Straining towards what is ahead, towards the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. So, let's look at this together and try and see how we can run well. Or maybe if you're the person by the roadside who's given up, how you can dust yourself off this morning and by God's grace get going again. So first of all, the past. Forgetting what is behind. As we've seen earlier in this chapter, we're well ahead of ourselves here, Steve. Thank you very much. As we've seen earlier in this chapter, Paul is looking back over his past life up to this point. And he determines by a regular and positive act of the will to forget it. The tense is literally to keep on forgetting what is behind. Now, you need to be clear what the Bible means when it talks about forget and remember. He is not trying to erase all his past experiences by some kind of spiritual amnesia. You know, if you said to Paul, Paul, do you remember that day when as a young man you stood holding the coats of an angry mob who stoned a man called Stephen with a face like an angel and killed him? Do you remember that, Paul? And he said, no, I can't remember a thing about it. Do you remember, Paul, when you used to go and arrest all these Christians and beat them up and put them in prison? can't remember a thing about it. That's not what he's meaning. Forgetting in the Bible and remembering, and we're going to look at remembering this evening as we come around the Lord's table to remember the Lord in his death, and I'll talk a little bit about that this evening. But forgetting means not allowing things from the past to influence us in the present and the future. Perhaps a better word would be ignoring. Forgetting is not allowing the past to influence us in the present and the future. And yet, I have to say, how easy it is that we allow past experiences to hinder our effectiveness in the present. 
and cripple our potential for the future. The longer I'm a pastor, let alone the longer I sit and self-examine myself, the more we realise how much the past can affect our present and our future lives. You see, the past can contain both negative and positive experiences. Even as I'm talking about this, I'm aware that some of you are saying, I don't want to go there. I don't want to think about that. Well, just stay with me a moment. Negatively, we can be crippled by past failures. And Paul says, don't allow these past failures, as it were, to cripple you. Is it not true that all of us have done things in the past which we regret? Paul, of all people, knew that. He had ruthlessly persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. He looked back with sadness on what had happened and yet he didn't allow it to hinder him in the present. Why? Because he'd experienced God's grace and forgiveness and continued to experience God's grace and forgiveness which set him free to serve God, set him free from condemnation of past things that he'd done. And I simply want to say to you this morning, no matter what you may have done, and even maybe things have come to your mind, even just now as we're talking, that you deeply regret and you're just so embarrassed and ashamed about, no matter what they are, God's grace can cleanse and forgive and restore. Now, Christian, to believe otherwise is to give your own sin a greater power than God's grace. To believe otherwise is to give your own sin a greater power than God's grace. In his excellent little book, Spiritual Depression, Its Cause and Cures, if you've never read it, it's well worth reading by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, to be miserable in the present, he used to be a, a famous assistant to a famous surgeon as well, so he's talking partly as a doctor but mostly as a pastor here, to be miserable in the present because of some failure in the past is a sheer waste of time and energy. That is obvious, it's common sense. The past cannot be recalled, you can do nothing about it, you can sit down and be miserable and go round and round in circles of regret for the rest of your life, but it will make no difference to what you've done. Then he goes on, let me go further to say, to dwell on the past simply causes failure in the present. While you are sitting down and bemoaning the past, and regretting all the things you have not done, you're crippling yourself, preventing yourself from working in the present. Is that Christianity? Yes, of course it's not. Christianity is common sense and much more, but it includes common sense. And then he goes on to say, the people I'm describing are failing in the present. Instead of living in the present, getting on with the Christian life, they are sitting down and bemoaning the past. They are so sorry about the past, that they do nothing in the present, how wrong it is. Now maybe that's you this morning. You did something in the past and it's crippling your effectiveness in the present. And I simply say, you need to bring it to God and seek His forgiveness. Because when you do, God promises something. When I was growing up, the older folk will not remember this, they used to, we used to sing a chorus, when God forgives, he forgets. That is strictly not true. God can't forget. But the next line, 
corrects it. He says, you used to sing, I won't sing it for you, but I'll tell you the words. When God forgives, he forgets. When God forgives, he forgets. He no more remembers your sin. When God forgives, he forgets. That's strictly correct to say, not that God forgets, but that as Jeremiah the prophet said, and it's repeated in Hebrews 10, it says, their sins I will remember no more. When you bring your sin to God, the things you have done, because of what Jesus did on the cross, if you come in repentance and faith and confession, God says, as far as we've done, I will remember it no more. Put it this way. God says, I will never bring up the subject of what you did in the past, ever, ever again. You know, sometimes when people are close, when they fall out and they, they move forward and then they say, right, let's put it in the past behind us. And then you have another row and the person says something and they say, you promise never to bring that up again. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Now, when God forgives, he never brings up the subject again. So why should you? Someone put it famously, God casts our sins into the deepest ocean and he puts a big sign up saying, no fishing. How sad it is that we bring up the things from the past that God has chosen to remember no more. Hard to believe, isn't it though? Especially when you do the same thing again, that God doesn't say, that's the 57th time you've done it. No, he remembers no more. But it may not be something that you did in the past, but something that was done to you that is hindering you. And it is not what was done to you, which may have been very wrong and very bad, but it's how you respond to it. And how you continue to respond to it. How many Christians leave a church and resign from Christian service because of something somebody did to them in the past. I have absolutely no doubt that if all such people returned to church one Sunday, we wouldn't get them in. But if you allow such things to affect you that people have done to you, the Bible says it has an effect on you. It says, it's like a, the book of Hebrews says, it's like a bitter root that grows up within you. So don't allow past hurts to embitter you. Here's a verse, Hebrews 12:15 that I just mentioned. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, notice what it says. It will make you bitter and it will affect everybody that you, the bitter person, comes into contact with. The word defile is a very interesting word in Greek. It's used of a stain, an eradicable stain of something, you know, a colour dye that you touch. And a bitter person is like that. Because when you brush up against them, it begins to touch you and colour you and your thinking and your attitude. Now you may say quite rightly, Pastor, you just don't know what was done to me in the past. What so-and-so did to me is just so awful, so terrible, so bad. And I don't. But I do know this. In comparison with what Jesus Christ has forgiven you, it is very small. In fact, Jesus told a parable about it, about a man who was forgiven a million pounds and was unwilling to 
forgive his friend who owed him a tenner in comparison and as I'm going to say this morning if you're going to run well if you're going to focus for the goal ahead of you negative things need to be forgotten you need to go on forgetting them because what happens is the evil one, our enemy he brings these things to mind especially when you're having a tough time and he says just remember what you did and then we need to use what Ephesians 6 calls the shield of faith to resist the fiery darts of the evil one the faith in what Jesus has done for us there's an old hymn we used to sing a verse of it what though the accuser roar of ills that I have done I know them and ten thousand more Jehovah findeth none but it's not just past negative experiences we need to forget we also need to forget past positive experiences which can cause us to become complacent don't allow past triumphs to make you complacent now the man writing this if anybody could have had cause for self-congratulation it was the Apostle Paul for 25 years he'd expended himself to the full as a missionary pioneer at immense personal cost and if anyone could have taken it easy and sat back and relaxed it would have been Paul but here he is writing to the Christians in Corinth using the same picture again from Athletics what he says 1 Corinthians 9 24 to 27 do you not know he says that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize run in such a way as to get the prize that's the same single minded determination everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training they do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever therefore I do not run like a man running aimlessly all over the place no I don't fight like a man beating the air I'm not a shadow boxer no I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others I myself will not be disqualified for the prize he's saying listen I'm still in training I'm still spiritually fit and focused I was strict some time ago reading an interview with a very well known Christian leader now I think he was in his 70s and they said as you look forward what are you praying about what's your, what's your goal now and he said this and it stuck in my mind ever since several years ago I read it he said I'm praying that I will not fall at the last hurdle praying that I won't fall the last hurdle past victories and no guarantee against future defeat in the life of a Christian how many Christians like Samson of old got up and said I will go out and fight as at other times and he didn't know he'd not just lost his hair he'd lost the power of the Lord that was with him ending in disgrace which God thankfully potentially redeemed so while we give thanks for the past we remember the Lord and all his goodness we don't forget his blessings while we learn from the past we must go forward and forget what is behind us and if you're going to make progress from today onwards it's the first day of the rest of your life to use a truism then you're going to have to keep on forgetting what lies behind that's the first perspective for the past now he says not just that I've got a future focus now but what he says about the future straining towards what is ahead it's a lovely picture it's a picture of a runner running in a race 
and he's coming around the final bend and he's straining towards the line and he's not bothered about what the guys behind him are doing he doesn't look back and say wow look what a long way I've come and how well I'm doing no he's focused on the future whenever I read this verse I think of the film Chariots of Fire and what's his name Ian Charlton playing there's a picture for you playing, playing Eric Little one writer comments defines the word straining says it's a vivid word drawn from the games it pictures a runner with his eye fixed on the goal his hand stretching out towards it his body bent forward as he enters the last and decisive stage of the race now friends if that is true what does it mean? it means blood, sweat and tears hard work absolute effort it's the same principle we looked at way back in chapter 2 of Philippians. Do you remember when we focused on that? Continue to work out your salvation because God is at work in you. When you do that, God's power energizes you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So, what is it that he's straining towards? Well, he enlarges on it. He uses the same word, press, again, pursue. Look at verse 14. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus now there are three aspects to this future focus alright the first one is the goal it's not spelled out specifically what the goal is but the context tells us from all we've looked at his goal his aim in life is to know Christ to become like Christ has he already attained this? yes he knows Christ but he wants to know him fully he wants to know him better He's been captivated by Christ, by a love that will not let him go and it's the burning ambition of his life to know Christ fully in a relationship that's no longer hindered by sin. Let me remind you of an illustration I think I used a few weeks ago but it may help. Think of um, a young couple that fall in love, alright? But they live in different countries. They meet, let's say they meet on holiday and it's a real holiday romance, you know, one that lasts, alright? One of them lives in one country, the other one lives in another country. And they're in love and they want to get to know one another better. And so every moment they can, even when they've got a holiday, one of them comes to one country, one goes to the other country, and they spend time together. Now what is their goal? Well their goal is they want to get married so they can be with each other permanently, living together under the same roof and loving each other. Now, it's an inadequate picture, don't push it too far, right? It's a picture of when you come to know Christ, it's a new relationship where you realise the love of Jesus for you. And you say, I'd like to know him better. I'd like to love him more. But there are things that prevent me. What is it? It's not that we live in different countries. Well, it's that I'm beset by sin. There are things that divert me from the course. But that my, my goal is I want to be with Christ be united with Him permanently forever in eternity in a body that won't wear out in a nature that will no longer be affected by sin clouded by suffering that's my goal in life now if you've got a better goal in your life than that I'd like to hear what it is that stretches beyond the grave in fact that's why Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because I'll be with him forever. That's my great goal in life. 
Now, unless you're in love with Christ in this life, it's unlikely that you've got any goal to be with him in eternity. Why would you want to be? That's the goal. What is the prize? What we looked at last week. To be found in Christ. Verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. The prize is that when you stand before God, the judge, on the day of judgment, you'll be found in Christ. The illustration we used last week. Your red bank account in heaven has been transferred and put into the name of Jesus Christ. So that when you stand before the judge on that day of judgment and he says, Peter Granger, let me have a look. Oh, terrible sinner. All the things he did. But I can't find his name anywhere. Where is he? Nothing under Jesus Christ. And the Father says, look under my son Jesus. Look under his name in heaven. That's where you'll find him. Found in Christ. Right with God. Declared innocent. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. Some years after he wrote this letter, it appears that Paul was released on this occasion. Some years later he found himself back in Rome, back in prison. And this time there was no release. He was down in the Mamertine dungeons under Rome. Chains, manacled, waiting to be executed. A privileged Roman citizen, he would have his head chopped off instead of something more gruesome. And here's some of his last words he writes to Timothy, his young protégé. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me, what? The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And here's the promise. And not only to me, but to also to all who have longed for his appearing. That's the prize for which God has called me, he says, heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now the third aspect, the goal and the prize, the last bit is the call. Did you see that? For which God has called me, heavenwards. The call is from heaven. Where Christ is, where Christ reigns, at the right hand of the Father, King of kings, Lord of lords. Paul first heard that call a quarter of a century before, literally from heaven, from the sky as it were. And he set out on the race. And ever since then, that call of God has been ringing in his ears motivating him to keep going. And at the end of his life, he knows he'll receive the final call from heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But it's not only the call from heaven, it's the call to heaven. It's kind of a lovely thought in the background. I think of this, not everyone has agreed on this, but I think it's there. You know in the, in the games, when the athletes competed, and the winner got the laurel wreath and he was called up into the imperial box by Caesar himself, if Caesar was there. He said, come on up, friend. And he goes up and he gets the wreath put on his head. You see, we're not only called from heaven, we're called to heaven. As the hymn puts it, the sky, not the grave, is our goal. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Heaven is our destiny. Now that's the future focus he has. That's what he's looking forward to. Now, what are you looking forward to? Let me ask you a simple question. If you were to die, it's a terrible thought, but if you were to die today, would it end in disappointment? So, oh, I'd be terrible because 
what my goal is, I'm hoping to get promotion. My goal is, I'm hoping to start a family. My goal is, I'm hoping to get a bigger house and, and, and really do what I want to do and that place in France that we've got our eye on. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. But they're not the final goal because death can snatch them away in a moment. But if you're a Christian, death achieves your goal. It makes it realisable for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so when that's the case, what do you do? Well, you keep running. No matter how hard it may be. So the book of Hebrews, again using the same picture, in Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, heroes and heroines of faith from the past, they're in the grandstand cheering us on. Let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who's gone ahead of us, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. From there he calls us and he says, keep running. You've not yet arrived. Keep going. Maybe this morning this is God's call to some of you who've either dropped out of the race or you're barely moving. Forgetting what is past. Straining towards what is ahead. I'm almost finished, but look at the conclusion in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. What he's just been talking about. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. If someone were to ask you, how would you define a mature Christian? What criteria would you use? Someone who'd been a Christian a long time? Someone who knew the Bible really well? Someone who could explain Christian doctrine to you in its all its detail? Someone who had served in church or mission? In many different roles? Now, while all these things may be on the CV of the mature Christian, they don't make a mature Christian. So how do you spot a mature Christian? How do you know if you're a mature Christian? Well, Paul gives us the clues in this last little bit here. When he writes about all of us who are mature, it's actually a play on the word perfect that occurred before. I think he's having a little dig about those who thought they were perfect. Here are three marks of maturity, very quickly. I'm almost finished, so just stay with us for this last bit. The first is what he's just written about. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. What view of things? That you've not arrived. That there's more progress to be made. You see, we tend to think that the mature Christian is like, you know, the, the pundits on television, the experts. The guy who's completed his career and he sits up there in the armchair telling everybody else how they ought to do it. My glorious career. This is how we did it in our day commentating on the progress of others. Paul says, no, no, not me, I'm still in the race. I'm still down there running. So how about you and me? Are we, are we we're still running? That's the first mark of a mature Christian. Warren Wiersbe, the American pastor and writer, puts it like this. Paul was satisfied with Jesus Christ, but he was not satisfied with his Christian life. A sanctified dissatisfaction is the first essential to progress in the Christian race. 
you got a sanctified dissatisfaction with where you're at as a Christian? I have. Sometimes when that far really come. What do you say? Well, listen, I'm doing as well as most people in Charlotte Chapel. Believe me, if you know the folk in Charlotte Chapel, I'm definitely in the top 10%. So what? Are you still running? And having said that, he then says something also very interesting. He says, look, let's be agreed on this essential thing, but as far as lots of other things go, let's agree to disagree. If on some point you think differently, well, okay, God will make that clear to you. The important fact is that we're in the race together. We shouldn't be falling out on what style of running shoes we use and what's the best isotonic drink to keep us going. You see, there are some Christians who, they're experts, not just on the essentials of Christian faith, but on every peripheral issue as well. And if on some point you think differently, well, I'll put you straight. Yes, the essentials of the gospel are fundamental, but on the other things, just leave it with God. He'll sort it out. So the second mark of maturity is still learning. John Robinson, pastor to the pilgrims, Mayflower, farewell speech to the passengers they set out to the new world. He said to them, The Lord has yet more light and truth to break forth from his word. Still learning. It's just amazing to me. I've read and studied the Bible for probably, certainly over half a century. I've read it time and again in the original languages, everything. But I still read it like Philippians and think, goodness me, where have you been? How did you miss that? Why didn't you see that before? You see, God's word is like that. It brings new light and new truth to us. We're still learning. And finally, Paul concludes by saying, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Up to what we've already attained, verse 16. The final mark of maturity is that when God reveals new truth from his word, we put it in practice. Still running, still learning, still obeying. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Now, whenever God speaks to you about some particular issue, it may be something quite small, maybe something momentous, maybe even this morning God's spoken to you about some particular thing, maybe from your past, or maybe you've realised you're opting out and you really ought to get back in the race or, or just some particular thing that God's put his finger on your life now the mark of maturity is that as soon as God speaks you're quick to obey because that's the level that you'll reach if you don't you'll grind to a halt at that point at where you've attained you'll not make any further progress there are some Christians who have been disobedient about certain things for 10, 15, 20 years and that's why they've never made any progress since that point in God's estimation or or, or everyone else may be fooled not gone any further than you were at it's at the point of obedience where you move forward when you say yes Lord I'll obey at that particular point I'm willing to do that and you move forward still obeying is there some issue on which you need to act I simply say to you today, if God is speaking to you about that, then do it today. Start running again.
I'm going to pray, but I want to use a prayer that's meant a lot to me over the years by Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India. And if, when I've read it through, there are three verses, and when I've read it through, if you want to make it your prayer, then simply say, Amen at the end. If you don't, that's fine with me. It's not the all and end all, but I find it a helpful prayer over the years. This is what it says. The words are on the screen. Read them. Let's read them prayerfully. And then say, Amen. And then we'll sing a hymn and a benediction. We'll go on our way. This is a prayer. And Amy Carmack was a remarkable woman. Went to India as a missionary. Never returned home. In all the 50 years she stayed there. For the last 20 or more years of her life, she was crippled in bed and couldn't move. Well, she couldn't move around. And yet she determined to focus on serving God and had an amazing impact on her community and on Christians ever since. If you don't know anything about her, look at Google, Amy Carmichael, on the internet. It's the prayer then. From prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, Great, you, you read it, I think. From fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should fly back. From silk and self, oh, Captain Free, thy soldier will follow. From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakening, not let the spirits fortify, not this way, when the crucified, from all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay. The hope, no disappointment, time. The passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy pure flame. 